we tend to be creatures of habit. We've just always done it this way, right? People just think, oh, diversity, you do mandatory diversity training, right? Diversity, let's do recruitment. And, um, you know, because I've done this, I paused probably about 15 years ago, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't work. And the data shows like one-time trainings don't work. And so we stopped doing those like 10, 15 years ago because, and it only makes sense. I mean, like, why would I think oh, I'm going to teach you about microaggression, assume it lasts for the rest of your life, like one training in a 45 minute period, like that doesn't make any sense, but that's what we've been doing. And then I think we've worked on some assumptions that, oh, if I just train you, you'll stop doing this. Well, the reason we call it unconscious bias is you don't know that you don't, you're doing it. And one time training on unconscious bias doesn't break those habits. This is Found in the Rockies, a podcast about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, featuring the founders, funders, and contributors, and most importantly, the stories of what they're building. I'm Les Craig from Next Frontier Capital, and on today's show, we have an incredible team building data-driven solutions to power diversity, equity, and inclusion change. It's practical, real, and focused. This is going to be a great episode. I'm pleased to welcome Jason Thompson and Justice Thompson, co-founders of Cape Inclusion. Hi, Jason and Justice. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. us. Having yeah. us, I guess. I'm Jason, just so people know. I guess for this voice. Yeah. yeah, and I'm Justice. Speaking of the, your names, it's rare that we have co-founders with the same last name. Any uh, significance to that in terms of the, the two of you? Yeah, we are father and son. So Jason is the dad and Justice is the son. Yes. And there's actually a funny story there because um, we're both uh, dyslexic. And so Justice's name is spelled J-U-S-T-U-S because shortly after he was born, there were a few complications. So they end up drugging up my wife, you know, and then I had forgotten to ask her how to spell Justice. And so <laughs> because I'm dyslexic, I was like, the only two words I can spell is just and us. And that's why it's, it's because you know, I had to fill out the birth certificate. And so yeah. it's justice on the birth certificate as well. So yeah. incredible. What, what an opening. I don't know that we'll ever talk about birth certificates <laughs> in the first three minutes of any other show. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Well, well, justice, tell, tell me a little bit about kind of your, your background and, and history. Why don't we kick it off with that? And, and maybe um, it's kind of a unique opening because you know, typically we ask to tell people stories, but your story kind of began with your dad uh, at the beginning of your life. So why, yeah. why, don't you, why don't you start there? Yeah, it's one of those kind of very unique, I think, uh, founder journeys where my founder journey and like my, uh, you know, kind of tackling the problem of what Cape Inclusion does started when I was born. Right. That's kind of the crazy part. So um, Jason, obviously, is my father been working in diversity of inclusion 25 years. And what that meant was that dinner room conversations were about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think most people don't realize it's been around for 25 years. So our dinner room conversation was, hey, had so-and-so say this, how would you guys respond? And him basically kind of testing our responses on what we would say. So I feel like I've been kind of in training for, for this company for 25 years. And that's, I think, one of the reasons it just felt so natural uh, to fall into, into what we're doing. And Jason, for you... Uh, take us back like 25 years and just maybe tell our listeners, I mean, your, your background and experience is absolutely incredible. I'd love to hear kind of the professional journey from, you know, of your career as, as spanning multiple roles in leadership and in diversity inclusion. 
Yeah, you know what's uh, kind of interesting is um, I got my first job in diversity at the University of Wyoming, which is um, unusual because I don't think most people think of diversity and think University of Wyoming. But I went to the University of Wyoming, dropped out, and they actually had a diversity office. And the director of diversity somehow found me and took me under her wings. She thought I had some potential and gave me a job, which I desperately needed. And she was, which sounds weird, she's the only person who ever asked me how my grades were. My parents never asked me. They just didn't, they, you know, they weren't very well educated and things like that. And, um, and then after I graduated from college, it, I was hired as the coordinator of the Multicultural Resource Center, they called it. It's like almost 30 years ago now. And uh, I worked for her. She's my mentor, Dolores Codona, and Dr. Dolores Codona, I should say. And then from there, I, you know, bounced around a little bit, but I ended up at the School of Pharmacy for the University of Colorado Health Science Center. And I was recruited away to help launch a diversity program for Integris Health, which was a large nonprofit hospital system in the state of Oklahoma. And then we decided we wanted to come back to Colorado. So uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee was looking for a diversity director. They were just launching their program. So I ended up at the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, helped launch their program. And then the basis of our business. In Colorado Springs, right? Is that Colorado Springs, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. very then, cool. Uh, while there, I invented a way to measure diversity. Um, the U.S. Olympic team is very complicated just in the context of it's the only nonprofit Olympic team in the world. And then every sport you see on TV is an independent nonprofit. And so <laughs> it was clumsy and complicated. And the CEO sure. came to me one day and he said, hey, Jason, how are we going to measure this thing? Like, we got to have a way to measure this. And then I started messing around with data and trying to figure it out. And I came up with a, a technique that they still use to this day, in fact. Um, and then a magazine it was a Profiles in Diversity, I think it was either 2016 or 17, named it as the number one innovation in diversity. Incredible. And so people kept approaching me like, hey, you got to monetize this thing. You turn this into business. It's a good idea. Like, you should do something with it. And I really never did much with it. And then mm-hmm. Justice graduated from college, and I, you know, jumped around, spent a little time at Techstars, actually. I launched their diversity uh-huh. program. And um, Justice was like, hey, I think I could do this. And this was shortly after he graduated. And the rest is history. You know, of course, everything's a struggle for a startup after that point, but um, kind of how it brings us to this part. So. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, and, and it's so fun, too, the fact that uh, your background, Jason, touches so much of our region between Wyoming and then Colorado. I mean, we've had multiple guests. Actually, we've had guests that have are graduates of the University of Wyoming on the show. Um, we've had multiple people from tech stars on the show. Natty Zola was on the show most recently, former, former director. Yeah. So really fun. How many places you touched. Uh, and then, so justice, you take us to take us to pick us up where, uh, you graduate from college. Tell us about where you went to school, what you, what you were studying, what you were interested in. And then, and then what, then what happened? I think that's kind of the perfect handoff is, uh, it was funny. I was in college, uh, really fell in love with behavioral science and sociology, had a minor in criminal justice, uh, and uh, sociology uh, with a major in psychology and behavioral science. So really, when I was there, really found a love for statistics. I was actually uh, approached by our provost because uh, I was pretty vocal on campus to actually start our diversity, equity, and inclusion program for, for the campus. And so uh, after I left, they uh, turned what was started out as like a small group into a you know university council into a full-time position so they now have a full position staff member uh, directly from that ask from the provost um, which was great uh, i graduated and really wanted to be a lawyer and then just was like okay like let's go talk to some lawyers see 
see what they're doing, see what they like. This was a similar timeline of, I think, a year after Jason had, had won the award and we were getting these comments. And after talking to all these lawyers, the consensus was, I hate being a lawyer. And the only ones who like their job, <laughs> who like their job, yeah, weren't lawyers. They were not using it for their legal. Right. It was like, yeah. boy, is this boy is that boring and yeah, terrible exactly. and hourly. Uh, so let's do something else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So after that, uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I don't think I'm going to go the law school route. Um, but was really passionate about what I had done at, at university, and I'd obviously been around all of this work uh, since I was young and, and just kind of, you know, told my dad one day, you know, we really got to monetize this. We had a, uh, another company that had basically tried to uh, <laughs> lightly take essentially his work and, and flip it and, and use it. And I was like, man, we got to do this for you. It's your work. It's your, it's your stuff. I think there's a huge opportunity for here and I'm ready to learn and, and figure it out, which was shortly after he had gotten his tech stars job. And that was the first time, honestly, we had ever, uh, been introduced to kind of the VC world. I, we didn't even know it was possible to get funding on, on an idea. And I mean, I think we had a lot more proof now, I know, than a lot of early startups, right? Like we um, already had it proved that sure. people would buy this. It, it had won awards. And so that's how we started. We didn't we didn't know a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is also what led me to take an associate role at the Techstars Western Union program. So I knew we couldn't get in. Um, and so I did the next best thing and I worked as an associate. I learned a lot of the things that that I needed to get into Techstars essentially six months later when we got into Techstars Chicago uh, and was able to to learn a lot from that. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the big thing was just jumping in, right? You, you got to start somewhere. And that just ended up being a really good place for, for us to learn was, you know, we couldn't get in, but we could be, you know, I had time. So I did this and, and was an associate at the same time. And, uh, and then, and Jason, also, I, I, I just realized we missed this because it's, it's an important detail of this whole evolution. Uh, you, you didn't just have an entire career in diversity inclusion. You also wrote the book on it, <laughs> diversity, diversity and inclusion matters. So uh, we'll give you a little plug there. We'll put the link to the book in the show notes, but tell us, tell us about that. Tell us about the book. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, kind of what happened was um, uh, Wiley Publishing actually approached me to write the book. So uh, it kind of got around that people kept asking me, like, hey, what are some tips? I'm trying to launch a diversity program. And I've launched four different diversity programs in four different industries. And so um, word kind of, and I would get calls all the time. People were like, hey, I just got this job. I've never done diversity before. What should I do? Like, help me. And then, so the book is kind of a very practical kind of how to launch a diversity program. And CAPE is actually chapters one through five. So CAPE is an acronym. So our company is called CAPE Inclusion. But CAPE stands for Collect, Analyze, Plan, and Execute. And what I found is most people were starting their diversity programs with a plan because that's what we're told. Like, oh, you should have a diversity plan. And so typically that creates a problem. And the problem, what happens is, for example, recently we met with, with a company and she said, same scenario. I just got this job, never done diversity before. They had a diversity committee and they decided to do recruitment. And I was like, well, how do you know you have a recruitment problem? You know, do you know recruitment is an issue for your company? And she said, I guess I hadn't thought of that. And I was like, yeah, that's the problem. That's why these things fail. You should collect the data and see, because they were a very visible company. And I was like, your problem isn't that people of color and women aren't applying. It's that they're not being hired. That's actually selection bias. So if you create a Mm -hmm. recruitment program, you're never going to get outcomes because that's not the actual problem. And, you know, the book basically lays that out, our, our work and our company lines that out and just helps people figure out where is the actual problem. And therefore, you have a solution that works because I think a lot of 
what we see, you know, people call it diversity fatigue and there's all kinds mm -hmm. of other things. And it's partly because they've created a, a problem or they created a, a program based on an assumption without actually mm -hmm. knowing what the problem is, which sounds super fundamental. But I think generally that's how people do diversity and inclusion. It's just based on assumptions. Hey, we should do this or we think that's the problem and they don't pause and go, okay, we should define the problem for sure and use data to figure this out. Yeah, you're right. It seems it seems like it would be common sense, but I mean, what wh what do you think the challenge is? Like, why why aren't people kind of recognizing that that fundamental uh, kind of step in solving the problem, or why haven't they? As 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 D and I, uh, you know, efforts have evolved over the years. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think it it speaks to we tend to be creatures of habit. We've just always done it this way, right? People just mm -hmm. think, oh, diversity, you do mandatory diversity training, right? Diversity, mm -hmm. let's do recruitment. And, um, you know, because I've done this, I, I paused probably about 15 years ago, with, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't work. And the data shows like one-time trainings don't work. And so we stopped doing those like 10, 15 years ago because, it, and it only makes sense. I mean, like, why would I think, oh, I'm going to teach you about microaggression, assume it lasts for the rest of your life, like one training in a 45 minute period, like that doesn't make any sense, but that's what we've been doing. And then I think we've worked on some assumptions that, oh, if I just train you, you'll stop doing this. Well, the reason we call it unconscious bias is you don't know that you don't, you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And one time training on unconscious bias doesn't break those habits. All right. A lot of it just is systemic. We don't think about it. We just keep repeating it. We do it because it's easy. And um, so I can see why diversity programs struggle. People just do what they've done before. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, it's hard to do it differently. Like it's hard to get people to accept, no, there's a different way to do this um, because it's habit, right? We're used to habit. This is comfortable. I've always done it this way. Let's keep doing it. And we're now pushing back on a lot of those assumptions and go, no, nah, mandatory training doesn't work. Believe me, no one wants to hear that. Like I've been saying that for years. <laughs> what do you and, mean it doesn't work? What else can we do? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it was like, oh, you're racist because if you, if you say it doesn't work, it means you're racist, right? So nobody wants to say that out loud. And what I'm saying is, no, it's, it's nonsensical to think a one, mm -hmm. I always tell people, I can't make you racist in 45 minutes. Therefore, I can't do undo racism in 45 minutes, right? It's not logical. <laughs> We've been doing this since right. not years. So. Right. What, is there also, Justice, what, I'd love to get your take on, on the, the challenge in the space as well, because I think this is something that has been increasingly important for us as a society, as, as a business community. Um, but I, I'm curious, like, like if, you, if you also perceive, like, is there a mismatch in expectations and what's reasonable and achievable for companies as it relates to like specific roles and, 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 and yeah. specific job types? I mean, is, is there problems that exist there as well? Yeah, I think there, I mean, I think there's a lot. I think that every diversity practitioner will tell you that, that there are a lot of, a lot of issues. Um, for me, I think the one that comes up, there are a couple that come up a lot. I think one is that there's not a tangible ROI. So what I mean by that is you'll do a program and some of these programs are fantastic. I remember talking to uh, someone at a very big tech organization who was telling me about how she created a program to identify managers and train them for promotion. And that, you know, the people in this group and the whole organization was really recognizing the value. Checked in with her about 12 months later uh, and they had cut the program. And they had cut the program because she didn't have the ROI to prove it was working, that it was increasing or addressing a problem. And so that's one of the big issues. It's, it's one that, that we seek to solve. And it's one of the things that when I was at the dinner room conversation growing up, 
you know, Jason would have the same issues. Like he would talk about these, these programs or things that were going on, but it was hard to get people to buy in or understand why it was set up in a particular way. Even though he had created the data to prove it, sometimes it, t- it would even take so long to get the data or it would be the person you're getting from the data actually has a bias and doesn't want to be impeached in this and essentially proven that, oh, actually I'm from the HR data department and we don't have any people of color. So if I give you the data, I've just essentially incriminated myself. So I think part of that comes down to this very wow. human aspect of it, right? Nobody wants to intentionally be racist or discriminatory. So it comes down to kind of that. That's why we call it implicit bias, right? So it, it, it's kind of, we need to not only remain in this, I like to call it a brave space of, you know, yeah, we're, we're going to find out some things that may make you uncomfortable, but we need to make sure we're present in that moment, but also make sure we have the data and the ROI to prove that, wow, we're doing this and we're engaging in this conversation. We're doing this initiative because we see people of color don't get promoted at the same rate as their white peers. We've identified that as a problem. That's why we're choosing to do this. And six months later or 12 months later, we can show that it's actually having the desired impact. And I think that there's a disconnect there that people really seem to get the problem nowadays. They really understand that this is what we need, but there's a disconnect between the data. And even if they understand the data, there's sometimes a disconnect between getting it easily that there, there are just so many blockers oftentimes in the organization. But yeah, for sure. And I want to, I definitely, I love this. I really want to highlight this, this data centric approach that Cape inclusion takes. Cause I think it's brilliant. And, and I remember when I kind of got the, got the demo and the breakdown, I was like, wow, this is a really powerful way to look at the world. I definitely want to go there, but first uh, I'd love uh, justice to kind of understand. So from Techstar associate, to going into Techstars with this idea and sort of carrying uh, this forward. Uh, tell us about your experience in Techstars and tell us about kind of like the zero to one kind of launch of this idea and, and sort of the formation into uh, into a, a technical, a tech company. Yeah, so I think that's a great point. So shortly after uh, Jason gave me the okay, he was like, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and try this. Um, we kind of got together and we put together uh, our first MVP. So the first MVP was was kind of very basic. It was in Tableau, um, but we were able to put it in front of uh, a group of chief diversity officers. And actually, Jason created the group we put it in front of or, or was one of the founding members. And that was the sports symposium. Is that right, Jason? Uh, DISC, Diversity Inclusion Sports Consortium. Hmm. Yeah. So Jason created that. We were able to present to them. And the overwhelming response that we got was, first, are you taking investment? And second, why can't we do this ourselves? And so, you know, we we were able to essentially know that we had a great idea, but it needed to be worked yeah. on. So that's good validation that was, when people want yeah. to invest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, that was that was great. We were super excited about it. And then that's when, you know, Jason was working at Techstars, was able to understand that, like, <laughs> there was a lot I didn't know. There was enough that we both knew that, okay, there's, there's some more here that we need to understand. And so that's when I ended up, you know, reaching out to, to Techstars, uh, work, uh, Techstars uh, Western Union. And Joseph and Ethan, who were the MD and the PM at the time, uh, sat me down and, and talked with me. And I told them, you know, I was running this business and really wanted to learn more. but was really committed to, you know, helping the program and doing whatever. And they, you know, took a chance on me. And that allowed me to be really close to the program. And I think the biggest thing that I got out of my first time as being an associate was number one, how hard it is to be a founder, being around all of those other founders and helping them with the issues that come up day to day. 
gave me a very real lens of what it meant to be a founder. And luckily, you know, that group of founders that I was a part of also had a lot of founders of color, which I still rely on to this day. Um, Kuru, the guys from Kuru were one, Ab and David, give them a little shout out. Uh, and there was uh, Viz, um, there was Derekus, there was a bunch of people that I lean on today, right? And I remember having very hard conversations with them. And I remember one in particular, I won't, you know, out who it was, but uh, there was one day a founder was, was crying and he was a founder of color. And I was like, hey, man, uh, what, what's going on? And we kind of went to a room and we just kind of talked about how hard it is to be a black founder trying to raise capital. And this was back in, you know, 2019 um, before the events of George Floyd. And it was it was just so hard. And he wasn't the only it wasn't the only time I had that conversation with other founders of color. So I think that was such a great foundation that we got at Cape that would have been harder, I think, to come by just naturally in the in the ecosystem. Um, but after that, I think I met an angel there, which was great, that ended up giving us kind of the seed money we needed to take this to the next level. Um, after that, we were able to build more of a more of a product um, on our own proprietary software. And then we're able to get into Techstar Chicago. And so was able to get into Techstar Chicago. Right after we got out of Techstar Chicago, we signed our first four customers paid, which I knew from, you know, being a part of that first Techstars as an associate and a company is very rare to get betas that are right. actually paid for, right? It, it's, it, it's kind of crazy, but, um, you know, then six months later, we were able to prove out that our software really works, right? Essentially, our customers saw a 20 percentage point increase in their target diversity areas in less than six months. And so what that means is all of a sudden they went from being, let's say 19% diverse for women to all of a sudden being 29% diverse in just six months. And that's where we really understood that we had something really, really special here. Um, and then after that, we've been up off to the races since, but that was really where it started was a, a tableau document that we were able to put in front of some chief diversity officers said we needed funding and then had to figure that out. Like, how do we even get funding? What is funding? How do we take it? What are the vehicles? What does it mean? How do we need to set up the company? So I think it's been quite a long journey, but it's been, you know, Techstars was really helpful in giving us some of the foundation pieces that we, that we needed. Incredible. And, uh, and Jason, you know, as you're sort of watching this evolve uh, and, and, and Justice is landing these customers and, and you've got this success, uh, what do you think? I mean, both as a, as a parent and, uh, as a co-founder. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it's funny cause a family business is kind of almost frowned on, as you know, for a lot mm -hmm. of times with startups, but I think, um, it's been fun to watch justice grow, you know, cause you, you, you see somebody as your kid and then all of a sudden your partners, you know, and, and it's a different conversation that you have. And it's weird cause he calls me Jason and, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I always want to be a dad. I like being called dad. But, you know, you have to realize, you know, it, it was that was probably the hardest part. Probably the first six months is like, why do you keep calling me Jason? Like, that's not my name. You know, I'm dad. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, dad, dad doesn't work yeah. in the boardroom. Right? Yeah, it just exactly. doesn't sound right. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So um, he was very like, like, that was the rule, you know, I got to call you Jason yeah. kind of thing. So, but I mean, that's been fun to watch. He's grown up a lot. And I always tell people, like, if they have questions about the finances that I can't answer any of that. And some of that is probably maybe my dad laziness. Like I know justice has that, but I think it also is <laughs> in him. like justice can do this. You know, he's, he's done the work to figure out how to, to raise. I mean, we're not there yet. We, we're still trying to raise, we're still struggling. You know, honestly, it's, you know, how it goes. It's, it's hard, but mm -hmm. 
that's been fun though. You know, you get to watch a kid grow up and um, do some amazing things and see him in spaces where, you know, he's the lead and he's making decisions. And that, that part's been a lot of fun, actually. A lot of fun. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and, and Justice, tell, tell us about kind of the Rays history. I mean, you went through Techstars. Was it, there was, yeah. there was a fun, was it Upscale that's? Yeah, Upscale Ventures. Yeah, Upscale yeah. Ventures, which I cannot speak enough about. So I think, you know, awesome. I think one of the hardest things as a founder is, you know, it's at this stage, it's oftentimes like if someone believes in you, it's just having that person who's like, yeah, I, I get the business but the business will change, right? We're going to pivot, but finding that investor that believes in the founders and believes in, in what they're going after. So Javier um, from Upscale's Venture and, and the whole group there um, was just fantastic. I, I met them at uh, Techstars Western Union. Shortly after that, uh, I kept up my my conversation with him uh, and, you know, it pitched him a couple of times, but it, you know, didn't want to ask for money. I, I wasn't at the stage where I was as comfortable as asking for money. I just kind of, it was weird. I'd never it's just weird asking people for money to, to start this idea. Um, but I remember the first time I asked him, I'd pitched him a couple of times to get his feedback on, on the pitch deck. And I was like, would you ever be, you know, interested in it? I was like, I've been waiting. He said, he literally said, I've been waiting for you to ask me this. He's like, I'm definitely, yeah. in. let's meet with the other people and, and figure it out. And I think since then he has been the absolute uh, rock of our company in a lot of ways of, of helping us, you know, figure a lot of stuff out and, and put in money when we needed it, right? To help us get to where we needed to be. Um, but that was kind of, so we got out of text, we got out of, uh, as associate, I, I, that was the summer of 2020, raised mm-hmm. a small amount from from the upscale group. Then we got into Techstars, which was the 120. Um, shortly after that, uh, Javier put in another note uh, to help us essentially, you know, execute on those contracts that we signed. And then uh, he put in one, uh, the end of last year, uh, ahead of a round that we were trying to raise. You know, we had right. essentially 250000 committed that we weren't expecting. We weren't trying to raise, but a fund essentially approached us and said, you know, we want to put in $250,000. We're associated with a, with, a, um, with a corporate organization, so we can't lead, but mm-hmm. we will definitely, you know, put in the money if you're able to, to pull this together. So we approached, you know, Javier about doing that. He said, yeah, for sure, I'll definitely do that, but I'm not, you know, an official fund. And so they, if they need an official fund, we may need to do, you know, something else. So we had kind of gotten that situated. Some DCs had gotten wind of it and also wanted to put money in. Um, one of the stipulations that, that, you know, that group wanted to do is they also wanted to want to leave. So we had to switch kind of the terms and, and go through that and end up falling apart. It just ended up uh, not happening. They ended up kind of, uh, you know, speaking with some of our customers and, and not investing, which was which was rough. I think, you know, it's, you try to protect your, uh, your customers as much as possible. And so we felt like we were in pretty serious conversations. Um, so that, that was really hard. And so essentially when your lead backs out, the, the round falls apart. Right. So there was a moment there we were like, we don't know what we're going to do because we were kind of counting on this money. And that's where Javier stepped up big. And I think this is why angels are just so important to the startup community when stuff like this happens, it's usually your angels and the people who really believe in you that step up. And uh, I mean, we proved him right. He put in another, uh, you know, around 40,000. And then shortly after that, we signed a $225,000 three-year agreement with one of our bigger customers. So, you know, it, it shows that, you know, it's happening and it moves. And now we're back on kind of the fundraising grind again, and we're, we're trying to raise right now, but that's kind of the, the journey in a roundabout way of, of how we kind of ended up and how funding has been going. 
Well, you know, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with, with our listeners because I think, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy to think when you're on the outside, you know, when you're a founder, maybe first time founder, you know, just thinking, you know, why is it so hard for me? The reality is it's hard for everybody, right? I mean, it is not, it is not a game of, 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 you know, simplicity and easy, like it's a constant struggle of complexity. And I really appreciate you sharing that justice because, uh, I think it's something, you know, all early stage founders need to really understand it's, this is the reality, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems more normal. I think, you know, the more, the more I share that story, uh, the more people come up to me and say, yep, have, have something very similar where we were, had the term sheet and we're ready to sign and had wire instructions. And then, you know, investor backs yep. out for, for whatever reason. Um, and that's hard to deal with. I think, you know, there's the, there's the ramifications for your company, but there's, you know, the mental ramifications and the emotional ramifications of what that means as a founder, right. To try not to hold yeah. yourself responsible for something that that's really out of your control that you, you know, there, there's nothing you could have done to, to make it go a different way. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it happened to me, it happened to me as a founder has not happened to me as an investor, by the way. So. <laughs> there you go. but uh, just to say it. So, so, so about two years in now, uh, Justice, tell me a little bit about kind of where you are today and what, what's getting you excited and what's, you know, what's getting you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. You know, what I'm super excited about is the impact we're, we're able to create for, for our customers. Like that is me, for me, I think for me, like this company is, is just different than I think, um, than I've seen other founders just for how close it is to my heart. I mean, part of the reason I started this is because I got to sit at the dinner room table and hear the pain points for 25 years from my dad. And so when I see the impact, I understand and can see the relief on these, you know, chief diversity practitioners faces of like, oh my gosh, I can finally breathe. And the things that I've been saying, I'm not crazy. Like I, I've been telling the organization they need to, they need to look at this specific group or they need to look at promotions. They need to look at this and for them to finally have the data. It's something that I know that, hasn't existed in the field before to really have that kind of concrete data to say like, this isn't just how employees are feeling. This is how they're actually being treated. And so to me, I think that's been, that's what gets me up in the morning. And also what's super exciting is to see um, a lot of companies honestly are frustrated right now with, with um, th what they're currently doing in diversity with the lack of ROI that they're like, okay, th mm -hmm. what we're doing seems great, but I keep getting raked over the coals for my diversity numbers. And what we help them understand is that it's nuanced. We don't change the diversity numbers, but we help them understand, well, actually these three departments got better and this department continues to be bad. And so they can actually address the specific issue because usually it's one or two problem childs and it's not the entire organization. So it helps them zoom in and, and just right size the ocean, which I'm super yeah. excited about. And we can tell customers are excited about, right? Like we're we're talking with some pretty big names right now and, and look at closing some some really, really big deals that um, even international deals that I think will will, will not only change, uh, you know, Cape Inclusion's trajectory, but probably the trajectory for <laughs> for like regions of the world uh, if we're, we're able to kind of bring these things to fruition. So I'm super, super excited about kind of all the impact we're, we're about to drive. That's very exciting. Yeah. And, and Jason, from, you know, having been somebody that has spent his entire career uh, in this industry. Take us a little bit more down the road of what Justice just alluded to in terms of the, it's more of this micro problem versus like this macro ocean level problem. Like, 
because I, I, I love I love the approach, like the detailed approach. Can you kind of take us into that data model a little bit more, a little bit more descriptively? Yeah, maybe with an probably, example. Yeah, probably a good example is um, when I worked at the Olympics. Um, the head of HR came to me and said, "Jason, our goal should be thirty percent diversity by like in three years, right?" And I was able to show mathematically that was impossible. And the reason it's impossible is that I was tell people diversity is constrained by who leaves and no company wants high turnover. So for us to get to 30%, at that time, turnover was like 10% and that was the goal. And I was like, well, if you keep it at 10%, there's no way because people have to leave. And even if you hire more people, that just changes the new random denominator, right? It doesn't change anything. And so people are setting goals they can't actually achieve. And that's the frustration point is, oh, we look the same. Or I'll hear all the, and I, I hear this all the time. If you're committed to diversity, your leadership team should be diverse. That is true, but it also means you need turnover at the leadership level, which most companies <laughs> don't want, right? If you think about it, if yeah. you can name a company that has high turnover at the leadership, something's wrong. Like that's how you <laughs> get, like, you get off the ship. The leader is right. doing that right now. It's going, you know, and so, but that has to happen for you to have quick diversity at the leadership team. So what happens is people set these goals they can't achieve. And so what we did is just figured out the math, like what's actually achievable. And if you set goals that are achievable, you'll know where you're at. And you also know, for example, you could have a situation where you look the same two years in a row, like your leadership looks the same and people think, oh, that's terrible. It's like, no, it's pretty typical, actually. Or if you have, you know, 10 leaders and, and two women leave, right? That's 20%. Mm-hmm. But if you replace them with women, the data looks the same two years in a row. That doesn't mean you didn't do anything. That actually means you you were actually 100% effective. You lost two women mm-hmm. and you replaced them with women, right? Like from a diversity perspective, that would mean you're actually doing good. What's interesting is most diverse officers and organizations didn't know how to present that data. They just knew mm-hmm. 20% gender diversity or 30%. They didn't know what the nuance is. And so what we figured out is um, there's actually leverage you manage, right? Who gets promoted, who gets terminated, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And if you manage those, which is what we do, mm-hmm. and show people how to manage it, you get outcomes. But more importantly, you get an outcome that is actually realistic. And I think the reason people are overwhelmed with diversity is they're trying to boil the ocean, right? They think, oh, we got to fix everything with diversity at the same time. And you can't. You can't do all equity at the same time. Like you're just, you just don't have enough resources. You know, you don't actually have a, most companies are so big, you can't actually impact every single hire, right? If you're a large company, mm-hmm. you're making a thousand hires a year and you have one diversity officer, there's just no way. But what you can do is empower the leaders to know how they, what they need to manage, what's expected, what's actually achievable. Um, you know, because I remember, like, sometimes people set these goals like, oh, we should be 50% gender diverse because half the world is women. Well, that's true. But if you're an engineering company and you're hiring electrical engineers, 20% would actually be reasonable. But a lot of people think, oh, we per- if we present 18% gender diverse, it looks like failure because they don't put it in the context, right? They're trying to boil uh-huh. the ocean. And so that's what we, I figured out. I've been doing this for years. Is like, yeah, it wasn't that I'm failing. It's that I don't understand data. And so I started, you know, thinking about what's the right data? What are the metrics? Um, but even in the Olympics, I remember um, the way I do, created the tables for them. I remember seeing at one point, you know, USA Volleyball. I love volleyball, actually. You know, we, we literally have one of the best women's team in the world. And there was a point where there are no women coaching the women's team, like literally the number one team in the world for women. <laughs> 70% of the athletes are women. And not one woman coaching, not one woman on the sideline where you're playing for the championship. How right? does that happen? Exactly. But I don't think <laughs> anybody thought about it until I started presenting the data. And then people are like, okay, yeah, this is so blatantly apparent. What are we doing, right? Um, and so I think that has been our kind of what differentiates us is because we started looking at, okay, 
there's some fundamental flaws in how we do diversity, but more importantly, here's the solutions. Here's how we should be doing it. Here's the data we should be tracking. Here's how we get outcomes. And here's how we set goals that are actually achievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, you hear the approach, you understand the model. I mean, it's it's really brilliant. What, Justice, why, like, if you're a diversity and inclusion officer and you're listening to this, like, what's the friction? Like, why wouldn't, why, why wouldn't somebody adopt this platform immediately? Like, what, what's hard about that? Because to me, it's, it just seems like such a clear approach and solution to, you know, one of our most pressing challenges in, in the business world today. Yeah, you know, it, it, I think there's a lot of reasons, right, that, that someone might potentially say no to, to anything. But I think a big part of it is the human component. I think sometimes um, what happens is a lot of times, number one, diversity, uh, the diversity position, chief diversity officers, head of diversity, usually are understaffed and under-resourced, which means sometimes Mm. it's hard for them to sign off on things. And the second part is a lot of times it's uh, kind of that fear, the subconscious fear of like, you know, our data is very different in in the fact that we show reality of what's really going on. And that can be intimidating. And we've seen some leaders that are like, man, I don't want to look bad. I, I don't want to look because they know the numbers don't don't reflect well. I think what I love about our platform is that it almost flips that on its head. That then when we start working with companies, the leaders that were immediately the most apprehensive love it the most because they're like, this is equitable. For example, we had a chief technical officer that we were working with um, who initially kind of had some reservations about partnering with us. Um, but, you know, we passed through and and got on and we sat down and talked with them and said, okay, here's what it is. And he was like, wait, my market availability isn't 50%. And we said, no, all your entire department is made up of engineers. Your market availability is closer to 30%. He's like, oh, that makes, that makes sense. And he, he was only at, you know, 11%, but 11% and trying to get to 50 is a lot different than 11% and trying to get to 30 or 28. Right. And so, and he loved it because it was practical. It's not just here's your diversity number. Now we're going to roast you. It was like we came alongside him and said, "Okay, so this number isn't what we what we want. But when we look at it, we have an awesome opportunity to actually impact or change this number. When we look at your hires, you make a hundred, you make a hundred hires a year and you're only hiring about 10 women, only 10 percent. So essentially, we're only talking about maybe hiring 20 more of the hires you already make to get us on the right track. And his eyes lit up. He was like, finally, I know what I'm supposed to do. I've been sitting in all of these trainings, but no one's actually told me what to do. And so right. we checked in with him, you know, six months later and, he, and his numbers looked fantastic. He had increased the representation of women. We had engineers coming up to us and saying, I have never worked with this many women in the engineering department in my entire career. They've been working for 20 years. And that was the magic of it becomes such an ownership and so and so uplifting from the human aspect of yeah, man, we're not here to grill you. We understand that there, that we all have blind spots. What we're here to do is to help you understand those blind spots and just address them. We're not here to, to grill anybody. And I think when they start to see that and buy in, the, the, the resign is really easy. Really, the hardest part is getting them on usually the first uh, on that first year. But we're seeing kind of a, a big trend right now or push towards this type of software that's really kind of helping people to dive into the data before they start that plan. And just to, like, like, go yeah. ahead, go ahead. Sorry, just to piggyback on that real quick. I think one of the things too, we do diversity differently. And so a lot of times if you're a diversity officer and it's your first time doing it, it's risk. Like we're saying, no, don't do, don't do traditional 
trainings, and we're not against trainings. We actually recommend trainings, but we think of it differently so that the training is tailored to the actual problem. So we'll look at, okay, where are the forms of bias? What kind of bias do you have? That's the kind of training because it's tailored. Then I know when I'm sitting in the room as the lead engineer, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, we haven't hired a woman in you know three years. I have gender bias. Now I know why I'm in the room. The data shows it. And then we can also say, yeah, six months later, after we did the training and we offered some metrics and some other things, we see change. Everyone all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it, it aligns now. But initially, it's hard for us because it's not traditional. Like If you think about it, if you have to make a choice between what I know and how people have always done it, or do I take a risk and try something no one's done before? This is my first time in this job. I'm the most senior person in this. That feels a lot like risk to people. And so yeah. that usually takes them a minute to for them to take that kind of challenge um, or think about it differently and take the risk and, and say, okay, I'm, I've never had this job before and I'm going to put the company in a situation it's never been in before. They're looking to me to do the right thing. I can feel their pressure. You know, I can understand why they have some hesitancy. Um, you know, but I think what's helping us now is the combination of the book that we, you know, the book basically has all these principles in it. Um, Mm-hmm. And the data, all of a sudden, it helps them align, right? The two things I think have really start to come uh, where people can better make sense of it. For sure. So I'm hearing you guys read the book. Let's read yeah. it. If you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, we'll put the link there. Um, definitely. Yeah. I mean, amazing. a funny comment about the book is that uh, we have actually had several uh, diversity officers who got jobs <laughs> and call us up and like, yeah, I use chapters one through six to get the job in the interview process. <laughs> But I mean, it's brilliant. It's like one of the yeah. best sales tactics ever. Like they just called like, yeah, read the book. Uh, when can we start? Because I literally use the book to get the job. So it's been phenomenal. Yeah. And that's also something I'm, I'm really excited about in the upcoming year as well. Yeah, that's terrific. And it's it's also available on Audible. That's where I downloaded it. I would, so yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's not, it's totally accessible and it's not that, it's not super long either. It's not a, it's not a huge undertaking, but it's kind of, kind of just right. So, yeah, I think you're um, it's super practical. I think that's one thing people say about me. Everything I do is very practical. Um, and I don't do much very, I guess I, I don't think very deeply. So nothing's theoretical. Like when you read the book, you'll see everything is just like, yeah, very practical. Like, yeah, yeah, there's no, we, we believe diversity is good. I don't, there's none of that conversation. And I do think, you know, that's why a lot of diversity officers have struggled is we've always talked about it theoretically. Diversity is important, mm. right? Well, great. What am I supposed to do on t- day 10 of the job? Great. I know it's important, but I got to start, you know, or we need CEO commitment. Well, great. What does CEO commitment mean? What is the CEO supposed to do? Like on a very practical level. And that's kind of what I start laying out in the book is, yep. you know, if you don't tell them what to do, they don't know what to do. They know it's important, but they don't always know because they've never had a diversity program either. So how are they supposed to support you? Right. And it's like, it's so easy to say, as a CEO, I am committed to diversity and inclusion. We are where we as a company are committed to it, but it's like saying it doesn't do anything. Right. Exactly. It's like, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd love to end with, uh, justice. You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but, um, uh, you got, you, you're either considering fundraising or probably by the time this episode drops, you'll be, you'll be fundraising. Um, I'd, I'd love just for maybe for some of our investor audience out there to, to understand how you're thinking about that. And, more important than that, and this is something I'd like both of you to to, to give a shot at, is um, what can the VC community do to better support founders of color and, and perhaps more generally diversity? I'd love to get both your opinions on that. Yeah, I mean, 
we could have a whole episode just talking about that for sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure we could. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there are a lot of things, but I think you know, two things just pop in my head that are that are super practical. I think that's kind of that, that's our mo. It's it's very practical. Theoretically, it'd be great if everyone invested more people of color, but but how do we do that, right? And I think um, there are two things very practically VCs can do. One is look at the questions that you ask and try to standardize those. Because what I found and what I found talking to other people of color um, is that oftentimes in women, we oftentimes get asked only risk questions. Well, how are you going to address this problem in the market or how are you going to do this versus opportunity? And if you just simply outline how many of those questions are asked in, in each meeting and you track that, all of a sudden you're making sure they're getting a similar experience, right? That, that I'm not only asking, and remember, this is implicit. So if it's happening, there's nothing wrong with it happening. It's worse to not know what's happening and let it go. So I think there needs to be some vulnerability about, about doing that. And the second thing is, you know, you've got to be serious about it. And what I mean by that is I can't tell you how many VCs took meetings or it felt like took meetings with people of color um, myself included and, and other of, of my friends and other co-founders after the events of Joy, George Floyd, just to, just to, and just to say, oh, look, we took meetings with this many people of color, but never invested in people of color. And so I think that, while well, on the surface seems like, oh, but we're, we're reaching outside. If you have no intention of investing, it's outside of your investment criteria, just let us know. Because otherwise you're wasting my time on an opportunity that I could be using on other investors who may be interested or working on the business. And so it's actually extremely detrimental to founders. If you have no intention yeah. of investing to meet with a founder, just say, oh, see, I am meeting with this founder of color. So I make sure, you know, I, I meet with this community. If, if they're not in your vertical and you have no intention of investing, just don't meet with them to begin with. It's such a waste of time. And sometimes I feel like I waste a lot of my time fundraising trying to chase down people who really have no intention, but they've said they're committed to diversity. So they're taking the meeting and I'd rather just not take the meeting because it, it's actually not helping. It's hurting. Yeah. That, well, I appreciate you sharing that. And it's so true because that is your most valuable asset, right? Your time and yeah. as a founder. So, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I, go ahead, Jess. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off there if I did. No, go ahead. I, I think the only thing I would add here is it's important to be intentional and Watch your data. Like you, you can tell, I just love data. I think it's data important. And I think you should, as an investor, be very transparent and, and have this uncomfortable conversation about, well, how many people of color have we invested in? How many women have we invested in? Right? How many people from the LGBTQ community? Like there's a lot of very difficult questions and the data will push you to answer that because, you know, justice makes a good point. A lot of times it feels like you're just taking a meeting because you feel guilty. No one needs guilt. What we need is people to be intentional. That says, look, I think there's bias in how I invest. I've looked at my data and saw that. One of the solutions, maybe maybe I'm asking people different questions. And the one piece that will never go away is it's inherently full of risk. Like mm -hmm. the risk that you, investing in our company versus any is really all the same. Like as an investor, that's inherent. So if you find that when it comes to risk, you're less apt to take that risk with women or piece, people of color, the one thing they'll tell you is data. And when you see that data, if you feel uncomfortable, like, yeah, it's... And unfortunately, we know nationwide women and people of color get about less than two or three percent of all the investment. So it has to be something. I mean, that disparate kind of um, number tells us something else is going on. And I think as a VC, you should probably track that data and say, OK, there's an uncomfortable truth. Here I've started asking myself. 
But the other piece is there is also opportunity. Like that also means we're missing because we know basically nine out of 10 companies fail. And if you're putting 97% of all your investment in the same demographic and getting that kind of return, just simple, you know, investment strategy would say, well, I probably should diversify and be very intentional about my diversify because there's got to be other founders out there who potentially could be equally successful, if not more so, if I just looked at my data and became very intentional. It's great advice, practical mm-hmm. and straightforward, as I would expect. Yeah, that's who I am. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's terrific. Well, Justice, Jason, uh, such a great episode. So, so thankful to have you both on the show as an amazing father and son team on on just an incredible mission. And um, we're excited to follow you. We're excited to uh, see what you do as you as you move forward and, and really work to change something uh, that, that is much needed in our world. So thank you for all you do. Uh, Justice, why don't you tell us uh, where our where our audience can find more about you both and Cape Inclusion online. Yeah, so we're at uh, capeinclusion.com and you can reach uh, Jason or myself at contact at capeinclusion.com or you can go to LinkedIn and and message us there. We have uh, Cape Inclusion, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, all the normal social media. So would love to to chat with anybody and including if you're a diversity (laughs) professional, you know, we love, we love hearing from those folks as well, so. And don't forget to read Jason's book. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, diversity and inclusion matters. But more importantly, I just want to say we appreciate the kindness of you having us on, on your show. That means a lot to us, you know. Um, and I think you asked what people can do. And I think this is one of the things you can do is just say, you know what? I have this podcast. Come on the show and let me help you get the word out. That was so kind of you. And it's much appreciated. So thank you. Thank you both. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to nextfrontiercapital.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop every two weeks. We'll see you next time.